Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Streaming box technology and business rundown. Welcome to the Screen Box Technology and Business Rundown podcast. In this month's podcast, I, Dave Erickson, and my co-host, Botan Sedesh, are going to search for answers about search engine optimization with our guest, Tom Demers. Tom has more than a decade of online marketing experience and a deep expertise in search engine optimization and pay-per-click advertising. He is currently the co-founder and managing partner of Measured SEM, an online marketing firm which helps clients significantly increase their web traffic and grow their businesses. Tom is also a prolific writer and writes for sites like Search Engine Land and Search Engine Journal. Today we are looking to find out exactly what SEO is and how it can be applied to various business and technology solutions. So Tom, did I miss anything? Is there anything you'd like to add to our humble intro? <laughs> no, I think that's a good synopsis. Thanks, Dave. All righty. Well, search engine optimization is, is an abbreviation, which means it can mean a million different things to a million different people. Um, you know, some people think search engine optimization is as simple as adding Yoast SEO to their WordPress site. And some people think it's about content and others think it's all about keywords and all kinds of other things. So maybe we can kind of start off with a, a kind of a conversation about what is search engine optimization? And, and maybe you can break down kind of the parts of search engine optimization. Yeah, absolutely. So I think off the top, one thing that people uh, might come at, you know, SEO or search engine optimization from different angles for is what platform you're optimizing for. So really technically search engine optimization, the way that most people think of it is I want to show up higher in Google right? In organic listings that are not part of their paid ads. You could think of search engine optimization too as encompassing other alternative search engines like Bing um, or even other platforms entirely. So there's, you know, the concept of app store optimization for search, uh, Amazon search optimization within, you know, amazon.com platform um, or YouTube, right? And those are actually increasingly a couple of the biggest search engines uh, outside of Google. Uh, but I think the, the most common way that people think about it is optimizing for Google, right? And showing up higher in Google search listings. So when you think about optimizing for Google, and there are some commonalities, but really it's fundamentally different than a platform like Amazon or YouTube. The things that we're thinking about for Google I think of them kind of at a high level as three different buckets, and there's some overlap between the three, but just, you know, sort of briefly to, to think about it, there's sort of off-page factors, which are external links. So obviously um, a major factor for Google since the dawn of Google and, and still is the external links that point to your site, meaning other websites that are linking back to your site, the volume of those sites and the quality of those sites and the relevance of those sites and the, and the linking pages. So that's one piece. Another piece is what I would think of as on-page factors. So that would be things like the actual content on your page, the way that it's marked up, 
um, you know, with uh, HTML, um, your the images on the page, the way that those images are are marked up, um, and uh, how quickly the page loads, uh, and the experience that the person has when they come to the page. So that's another bucket, and that bucket overlaps with a lot of times with what I would think of as the third bucket, which is what I would call technical SEO, which is obviously impacts the on-page factors, but encompasses things like information architecture, the way that your pages are interlinked, the way that Google is able to index and crawl your site, and the way that you're leveraging things like redirects throughout the site. So there's three different, again, right? Like those are three different buckets. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about SEO is the relative importance of those three buckets varies a lot based on the type of site that you have, the age of the site, the type of business that you have. So a B2B SaaS company is going to have very different dials across those three buckets in terms of what's the most important than, say, an e-commerce store, right? Or a local you know, plumbing service business, right? Um, which will encompass things like local SEO too. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot of, I think like a, a theme for me always is answers to a lot of, you know, high level SEO questions are kind of, it depends, right? So there's a lot of variance, um, cause there's so many different ranking factors that Google's taking into account, but at a high level, that's a, I think a useful way to think about it. I think a, a lot of people are focused a lot on Google searches. That's what they stick in their mind, you know, as a small business or medium business, you know, how do I rank? Cause they, they see traffic only coming from that one source and they probably clump all, you know, search engines like Bing and, and Google as one thing. Um, but I, I think as businesses become more savvy as they grow or get experience, they'll start looking at a lot of these others. And I, I do agree that, that things like YouTube are, are its own search engine and is growing as well as the various others and, and how images versus text all, all relate. I, I think that is a changing ecosphere. Yeah, I mean, you did briefly touch on uh, link building. <laughs> and uh, for me, it's a topic almost as obscure <laughs> as the arcane art studied by Dr. Strange, right? And uh, <laughs> so at the low end, we can pay someone on Fiverr to push our pages to the top of Google search results for a day for five bucks. Or we can subscribe to a high-end service to keep it there for weeks, months, years. Uh, but the question remains, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And uh, why is it even a thing? Like, wh why does it matter? The reason it matters. So basically, when you look back at the early iteration of, of Google, particularly, part of the reason that it kind of won against other search engines was the idea of using links as a signal for quality where the it was it was actually i think uh larry and sergey the founders of google took it from uh you know kind of the same concept that people would use with uh research papers right where if your research paper was referenced in other authoritative research papers that was an indication of quality and authority so same premise is true for your website so if you're getting links from authoritative sources uh, a volume of links and increasingly if you're the links have contextual relevance those are seen by google as an indication of authority so in other words you know if you have a plumbing site and you get a link from a directory that nobody else is linked to that's sometimes better than nothing but 
not super valuable. If you get a link from a very authoritative directory, that's more valuable. If you get a link from a very authoritative directory of plumbers that's hard to get into, that only links to really high quality you know, plumbing services, that's kind of the, the perfect nexus, right? So, and then when you think about link building, you know, we do different sort of tactics for different sites and different clients. And again, right, I think it's really an it depends, right? So depending on, you know, what you're trying to rank for. So again, for that plumbing service, super competitive national keywords might not make a lot of sense because they're trying to get, you know, uh, local, you know, business and they're trying to rank for like town name plumbing services, right? So they don't necessarily need a super expensive, um, you know, PR, uh, you know, uh, outreach campaign. Uh, they may need, you know, really organized uh, links from all of the local directories. They may need some links from local websites where they're doing more things like, you know, uh, sponsoring local events, right? And or uh, pitching stories to local news publications. And by doing a lot of that work, they'll actually show up at the top of a lot of the terms that they're trying to rank for. So I, I think the way that you want to think about it is looking at your goals and what you're trying to accomplish, how competitive the terms that you're trying to rank for are. And then what your resources and capacity are, right? And how you evaluate. And one of the things that's really difficult about link building is figuring out link building ROI, right? Because it's kind of a, it's, it's just one aspect of SEO. And a lot of SEO ROI is, is sometimes difficult to back out, especially if your business doesn't do a great job of tracking lead sources, right? So figuring out, okay, you know, and I think a standard, uh, metric that we sort of anchor people's thoughts around is, you know, you might pay anywhere from 300 to $600 for a link, right? So what does that mean? If I get uh, a guest post, right, which is basically I pay someone to uh, do outreach to uh, a blog, hopefully a you know relevant authoritative blog, uh, get a piece of content posted on that blog, that content links back to my site. Again, the standard pricing might be anywhere from 300 to $600 for that link. So you have to kind of think about the global ROI of, okay, what am I paying for these links? What am I paying for the content on my site? What's my overall SEO investment? And uh, does that back out when I look at the return that I get from my SEO traffic? Um, so that's a challenge with link building. And again, I would say, you know, the, and, and then, you know, another thing to incorporate there too is your risk threshold, right? So you mentioned both on the Fiverr links, right? So the thing about, you know, spammy link building is, uh, it's not uncommon that it might work for a period of time and then get your site burned. <laughs> so if your risk threshold is, okay, this isn't a business for me. This is a site that's a churn and burn and I'm going to you know, invest X and hopefully get Y and maybe that site gets burned to the ground in two years or six months or three months, then you might be fine with that. But if you have a business website and you're doing a lot of branding around your business and you want to have to change the name of your business <laughs> or right. you know buy a new domain, then you're probably going to be a little bit more risk averse and you want to stay away from those and you know uh, go towards uh, safer tactics like some of the things that I mentioned, right? So yeah. That's right, right. So if I start a new dropshipping business selling uh, junk, then I, I want to go to Fiverr for link building. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, again, it's like, I think the people who, you know, one of the things to keep, keep in mind too, right. Is a lot of people who push specific tactics have an incentive to push that tactic. Right. So, you know, if you're doing the high end, super expensive PR link building, you're going to talk a lot about how the garbage link building doesn't work and, and maybe vice versa. 
everything works to an extent for a certain period of time, right? But right. it works until it doesn't sometimes, right? And, and if it's executed properly, I would say, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that the site may burn to the ground with garbage link building, but how does it look? Does it just get erased from Google? Yeah, it can be. And so one of the things that's interesting, I would say in the last two years, so I've been doing this for you know 10 plus years, it's been the most turbulent in terms of the volume of updates that Google rolls out, algorithm updates, and how swingy the search results can be for specific sites. So, you know, when I say burn to the ground, that could mean zero, right? So there are sites that will get hundreds of thousands, uh, millions of uniques a month, shoot right up, again, on some of these different uh, aggressive or spammier tactics, um, and then just go to zero, right? And again, like really burn to the ground. And so again, right, for that particular operator, that might be an acceptable outcome because maybe they made their money back on, right, whatever spammy links they bought in the four months that they ranked, right? But again, right, like if you're trying to build a sustainable business, uh, A, you're not necessarily going to be great at evaluating which of those, that's kind of a science in and of itself. And you need to be pretty, you know, again, a lot of the stuff that you will buy on Fiverr will have somewhere between a negative impact to no impact at all. And you'll never get that burst, right? Um, but if you're really good and you kind of can evaluate what what link patterns will work for a period of time, then again, you might get a short-lived burst from it, but you know there's super high risk there. And burn to the ground could be not only that your site goes to zero traffic, but it, that it's de-indexed, meaning like if somebody's looking for your brand, they can't find you, right? Which again, if you're a business, that's that's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong downside, right? It seems like Google created the index for those businesses who are legitimately trying to, you know, promote their business and do the right thing. And if you do that, you're probably going to be in a low risk uh, activities. And, you know, you said there's these three buckets, which is basically there's the, the technical SEO, there's the content SEO, and then there's the link building. And we've kind of talked about the link building. But how about the, you know, the content side, everyone kind of says I put up content and sometimes the content's done really well, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it syncs with keywords that are important for you. But then there's also the technical side of the, the site. I think people understand content, meaning they can write content, but a lot of businesses probably don't know the technical side of things like making a clean site and all that. What are some of the things that have been evolving in the last couple of years on the site development side? Like, are there certain types of sites? Like, I don't know, there's now a lot of sites like WordPress and Wix and, and all these other kind of site builder sites. I don't know, how are they doing as far as SEO is going? Or is it still better to build the site from scratch and, and really meticulously go through all the HTML code and, and, and make sure it's perfect? Does it seem to matter a lot? What what are your thoughts on that? My experience is that again, right? It it depends on the implementation. So you can rank a site, you know, that's totally, you know, sort of uh, homegrown and, and hand coded. Tons of WordPress sites drive tons of traffic. Uh, even some of the platforms like uh, Wix have gotten more uh, SEO friendly than they were a few years ago. Uh, so it really just depends on the implementation. A lot of the best practices, some of the things that I think have been uh, increasingly emphasized in the last couple of years 
Um, page speed and page performance are certainly important. So Google gives more insight into uh, some of the page speed metrics that are important to them, the core web vitals reports that you can see in Google Search Console. Page speed insights is a pretty good resource usually just to get a sense of here are some of the things that are you know potentially slowing your website down. And in general, building a faster site is going to be better for your users for conversion uh and for seo so you know that that's all you know valuable i think that's something that's been dialed up within the last few years um on the technical side i think another thing that's another couple things that have been dialed up so one would be google's looking at your content as a portfolio of content and this is they've talked about this some with some of their what they they called the helpful content updates um, they always have fun euphemisms for their their updates um, but you know one of the things they're looking at is is your content what google would consider thin meaning there's not a lot of content on the page or not particularly helpful or useful and really specifically targeting search results rather than being useful for users which kind of means low quality um, and what percentage of the content on your site falls into that bucket, right? So again, if you have a lot of stuff that's indexable and some of it might not be stuff that you're trying to game Google with, it's just, it looks like it's low quality to Google and it's getting into the index. And when people, one of the things that Google looks at is what we would uh, call like pogo sticking, meaning somebody searches for something your listing shows up, they go to your site, and then the person has a bad experience kind of immediately, maybe the page loads really slow, maybe it doesn't fit with the search result, bounces back to the search result and picks something else, right? That's the kind of pogo sticking. So that's an indication to Google because Google has the data of the user's interaction with their search listing, right? So that's an indication to Google, oh, this is a bad result. We're gonna stop showing this result. And if you have enough of that, with your listings that are showing up in search results, Google's gonna say, oh, okay, this domain is not that great. So again, that might not be like a burn your domain to zero, but it's gonna be like, oh, we're gonna suppress them a little bit. We're not gonna show them, for, particularly for search uh, terms related to this sort of basket of keywords that they're getting bad engagement for. Um, and that piece too, uh, being sort of what we call like a topical authority is another thing that I think has been dialed up and that overlaps with, that's you know partly content. Are you writing lots of content around the same topic, going really deep with multiple articles, covering what Google sees as a lot of the related topics, and also interlinking those um, strategically, right? So you're creating a basket of content around um, you know, uh, plumbing repair tips or even like specific, um, you know, uh, you know, t issues with your, you know, specific things that can go wrong with your toilet and, you know, how to and tips around that, but also interlinking those, uh, making sure that, you know, you think about, you know, one of the concepts that we think about in, in, in terms of topic clusters, right? So like a hub page and what we would call spoke pages. And do, does that hub page link down to those spoke pages, right? So does your, you know, plumbing repair tips page link off to each of the individual sort of tactics that you're talking about or problems that you're addressing? And then do those interlink strategically too? And that doesn't necessarily mean that every page has a link of like 500 um, internal links to everything within a cluster. It actually means like coming, taking the time to contextually link those within the body copy of the content that you're creating and linking them to the, the posts that are relevant. So one way to think about it that we frequently do is almost like you have your parent page um, 
at the top of your cluster. It links down to each of the individual child pages. And then a lot of times the child pages almost link together like a chain. So there's, you know, links, you know, from one to the other, um, and particularly the topics within there that are the most relevant. So that's something that I think has really been dialed up. You used to even, um, I would say kind of pre pandemic in the kind of the 2020 and before range, you would really be able to just kind of churn out a lot of posts that were within a niche. So maybe like the plumbing niche or the pet niche, but they weren't super tightly related to each other and they would all rank. Whereas now it's a lot more difficult to do that. Google's looking more for that topical authority. Like, are you writing deeply about this one topic? So, you know, for to take pets as an example, not just like, you know, uh, right. Like one post on nail clippers for cats, one post on food for birds, one post on, you know, uh, uh, the best, you know, brush for a burnadoodle. It's like, have you been writing, have you written 20, 50, a hundred posts about burnadoodles, right? That kind of thing. I have a burnadoodle. So, um, so yeah. Even though backlinks are ones that are relating to your sites, there's, there seems to be this second kind of link category, which is internal links, where you write a you write a post about toilets, and then you write a post about uh, best lever mechanisms for toilets, and then you have a link from one article going to the other, and vice versa, and then you write a third article about the best toilet seat, and you link that yeah. to your other two. So you're you're kind of building this network of internal links which is different than the backlinks, correct? Correct. Yeah, exactly. So that's, and the, and the, again, the external links are links on different sites. And like I said, we want whatever the best combination of authoritative sites. So sites that are, you know, popular and have lots of links and relevant links. So a document that's about plumbing, as opposed to, you know, getting a link from a site that's all about pets to our plumbing site. But also we, and then the the next layer to that too, uh, particularly with internal links, which obviously is anchor text that you can control is the anchor text or the linking text that you use from document to document. So for instance, if we're linking to um, our post about uh, the best uh, brushes for Bernadoodles, we don't want to use the same linking text every time that we link back to that page. um, Because that kind of indicates to Google that we're sort of over-optimized. We want to use different variations if we can. but pretty tightly. So not necessarily like click here or, you know, here's the post, right. As the linking text, but also not just Bernadoodle brushes. It would be like, you know, the best brushes for Bernadoodle, your Bernadoodles, uh, you know, the, our review of the best Bernadoodle brush, right. That could all be interlinked, right. Um, Bernadoodle brushes that make your Bernadoodle happy. Exactly. Yeah. And a good way to think about that is to look at the basket of terms that you're trying to rank that particular page for and using, you know, you might have like 20 different, you know, pretty specific variations that you're looking at either third party keyword tools or uh, in Google search console to see what that page has ranked for in the past Um, and using those as anchor text to kind of link to that page, thinking about that strategically too, uh, can be really powerful. And when you have control over external links, like if you're getting a guest post or, you know, uh, maybe you have like a partner site that's uh, linking to you, you want to use a similar tactic, right? So you want to vary the anchor text, um, but have it be, you know, uh, sort of uh, relevant and specific to the page that you're linking to. I mean, some of these principles are quite easy to apply, right? For titles, headers, all tags and images, meta descriptions, uh, nicely named uh, anchor links, of course. But in your opinion, what what is the thing that is most underutilized in uh, commercial sites? I think that varies a lot from niche to niche because the most important thing for different niches is going to be different, right? So... 
I think broadly speaking, I think those the topic cluster and internal linking might be one of the most underutilized. A lot of sites don't really in, link internally. Don't think about information architecture broadly too. So not just internal links, but um, where content lives within the site. So the difference between, I mean, they're, they're related concepts, but when I talk about information architecture, it's more, if you think about, if you were a robot coming to your site, how many clicks would it get, would it take you to get from the homepage to any important page on your site that you want to have rank well? So an older blog post, for instance. So a lot of sites, when, you know, we audit a lot of sites, a lot of sites, you, you, you'd, it would be like 20 clicks deep, which is, you know, again, pretty wild for sites that don't have that much content. Um, for a page that they really want to have ranked, that's keyword rich, that they took a lot of time to create content for, but it's not, it's just buried very deep in the site. So thinking about that too, um, and what you want to think about is generally speaking, most sites, the homepage will be the most linked to site. In some instances, you might have, uh, you know, link baits or specific, you know, assets. Maybe you do like a, you know, a yearly report or a real, a linkable asset that does really well that'll rival the homepage depending on the site. But you want all of the content that you want to have rank be as close to those pages, meaning as few clicks away or as flat an information architecture as you can. So I would say that concept, internal linking and thinking about this clustering and really going deep within clusters is one of the things that's still the most underutilized. I think a lot of sites think about link building, not all sites do it. Um, and again, I think it actually has a variable ROI depending on your site. If you're a site that's targeting really low competition terms, you probably don't need a ton of uh, external links, right? It does. It might not. It might make more sense to invest in content um, and you know some in cleaning up technical issues and things like that. Uh, but if you're a you know B two B SaaS company where only a, a handful of terms are really going to drive ROI for you and they're in a really competitive market, then link building might have a great ROI for you and that might be the most underutilized, right? So all this talk about internal links has me thinking, do web crawlers or robots, do they understand single page applications? Give me an example of what you mean by single page applications. Oh, like if the page loads up and all the content is just swapped out using JavaScript. So you can build sites that, uh, you know, use a lot of JavaScript and have them be search friendly, but Generally speaking, if the site is built without an eye towards search optimization and making sure that Google can crawl it, you'll often find that Google's not going to be able to find a lot of the content um, or crawl the site, right? So thinking about the navigation elements being wrapped in JavaScript can often be problematic. One of the, one, a great tool for this to use um, is within Search Console, you can uh, inspect URLs. Right, and you can basically kind of see, and you, so you put an inspect URL um, at the top of Search Console, then you can click test the live URL, and you can kind of see the URL the way that Google sees it, right? So you can get an you can get an idea of um, what is Google actually able to crawl and you know sort of ingest. It also shows you some of the JavaScript errors that Google's experiencing, right? Which again are a lot of times going to be different than what the you know somebody's just seeing in the browser. Um, so that's a good you know sort of quick test um, when you roll something out, if, you know, particularly if um, you're finding that stuff. One of the things that we find a lot is when people design their blog homepage, they want, you know, a really clean, nice looking blog homepage, um, but the, it won't be crawlable, right? So things like if you have a load more button, a lot of times Google, like, or an infinite scroll, a lot of times Google's not going to scroll. <laughs> They're not going to load more. And another good kind of trick for, for identifying that is, you, uh, so you can do what's called a site search operator where 
um, you can look you can look within Search Console at your index pages. So you would look um, you know uh, within Search Console to see which pages are indexed. That's a few clicks deep, but you can quickly see this just by going to Google.com, hitting site colon in your website. And then like slash blog, if all your blog posts live off the, you know, blog uh, subfolder. Um, and then you'll see all of those URLs that are, that Google's indexing. So if you look at that and you're not seeing some of your recent posts um, or, you know, some of your blog posts generally, that could be a red flag. And one of the things you can do is again, right, take a blog post, go to that inspect uh, URL in search console. And if you scroll down, Google actually shows you how they discovered the URL. So again, another red flag is if they're not discovering the URL through your site, like through your blog homepage, but they only found it, say, through your XML sitemap, um, that's potentially a red flag, right? That they're not crawling some of the content on your blog page. And we see that a lot, um, you know, again, we're just with, with sites that will use like different designs. Um, so, you know, still having like paginated results um, you can, and you can have, have both experiences. You can have a load more button for your users. If you find that that's a better experience for them. I think generally, if you do any heat map testing, you'll find that the vast majority of, uh, users do not scroll down to the bottom of your blog results listing. So it's actually probably more, uh, for SEO than anything, but you could have the load more button and then paginated results beneath that. Um, so that there's a, you know, again, crawlable HTML version of those results. Um, and another tip I would say for those, um, that we often find uh, is a recommendation that we'll make for people is just to show more results for those two. Um, again, right? Like you can have the, you know, stuff that you want to highlight above the fold, but showing, so Google will typically crawl. It varies a little bit depending on how authoritative the site is, but they'll typically crawl around a hundred links on a page. So if you're only showing like five blog results and then you're going to pagination, right? It's again, right? You think about clicks, right? It's click, 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 right? Yep. To get deep into the archives. So showing more results and showing more of those paginated links. So instead of just showing like, you know, okay, here's page two, here's page three, like one link per paginated result showing here, you can go to one to 10, or you can just go to the last page using that as a, uh, pagination tactic is another way just from an information architecture standpoint to, to flatten the site. We've had that, especially for sites that have a lot of older blog content, um, that does pretty well, that can have a pretty significant impact on uh, search traffic, just that you kind of bubble those pages up. So those 100 clicks don't get reset if I uh, paginate, for example? They, so do, get, like, uh, they do get reset when you go to a new oh. page, yeah, when you paginate, right, yes, right. exactly. So each page would have, you know, kind of 100 links or so that Google would mm -hmm. crawl. Again, that's just cool. a rough... If you had 100 blog posts, you could do 10 pages of 10 each, but it might be better to do five pages of 20 each. Right? Exactly. Right. Cause again, right. And, and, you know, link to each of those from that homepage. Now everything is just a couple clicks away from the homepage, right? Cause if the homepage links to the yep. blog, you know, instead of being, you know, maybe again, right. Like 10 or 15 pages deep by the time you get deep into the archives. Yeah. And it could be that, you know, you have topics of blogs, so you can have all the blogs on one topic as, as a page, and have that as a linked page. And if there's 20 of those blogs, that's great. Uh, you can get to them through the menu and on the homepage, right? Also, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Using categories is a great idea. And then thinking about too strategically, you know, another mistake that I see a lot of sites, uh, make is having categories where it's like, you know, again, right. Like my, my plumbing site, I have like a plumbing category and, a like about Tom's plumbing you know, company. And then like, uh, you know, maybe I do a little bit of stuff with like HVAC and then an HVAC category. And then 
if I write a hundred posts, you know, 94 of them are about plumbing. So those are all in the plumbing category, right? You want to actually think about, you know, categories that will, where the posts will flow somewhat evenly into those categories, right? It's not gonna be perfect. But so instead of just having a plumbing category, I'd have like, you know, separate categories for each of the different plumbing topics, right? Plumbing for showers, plumbing for toilets, plumbing for- uh, Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, another, again, another kind of thing to think about from an information architecture standpoint is where you expose links to those categories or topic clusters, right? So if I have, you know, again, right, like, you know, six or eight of those different categories, um, I can have links to those from like the right nav of my blog or, or below blog posts, right, on each individual post. I can have links to those categories from like breadcrumbs on an individual post back up to the category that it's in. I can have links to those from the blog home, and I can even have links to those from the footer, right? So within the footer of my site, um, instead of just having like, you know, my general like sort of about pages and privacy policy and some of the standard things you'd think about, I could have, you know, the categories or like, you know, um, our most popular topics or even individual blog posts that I really want to push link equity to, right? Um, so all those things are good things to keep in mind and, you know, pushing link equity with popular posts and relevant posts. Um, again, I think those are all underutilized tactics. Yeah. Yeah. I see that on, on, on landing pages now where they're, they're talking, you know, like a B2B landing page, they talk about the company and they talk about their product, et cetera. And then they'll also have a section where it's three blog posts uh, with each one with a topic that's very relevant to what they're talking about above. Uh, and that way they link directly to those posts from the homepage. And those tend to be the posts they want to promote. Obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, for B2B, again, one of the ways to think about these topic clusters, it's obviously a lot harder now than it was. So 10 years ago, you had a sales page, right? Which was either like, you know, plumbing services in, you know, uh, Boston or whatever. And you would say, okay, I want to rank this page. So I'm just going to fire a bunch of external links at this, right? Um, and this is going to rank for whatever I want, right? Or a, maybe a better example is like, you know, um, you have a software product, uh, let's say that is, you know, uh, uh, data loss prevention software, right? And you wanted your data loss prevention software page to rank for data loss prevention, right? You used to be able to just kind of fire links at that page and it would start to rank. Now Google's much more specific to the query intent. So it's not going to rank your data loss prevention software page for data loss prevention because it knows that users really want uh, an informational result for that. So they want like a glossary page for that, right? But one of the things that you can do is those pages can still rank for data loss prevention software. And a powerful way to do that is not just to build links into that page, because again, it can be hard to get like a quality editorial link into that page that actually makes sense. You're probably having to do some more Fiverr or you know guest post type stuff. What you can do is actually build external links to your informational pages, right? So you might have like a, a data loss prevention uh, glossary page or even like a state of data loss prevention or something, right? Report, you get links to that page and then that page is linking back to the data loss prevention software page and they're part of the same cluster, right? So a lot of those pages within that cluster are ranking to the software page where it makes sense um, and pushing link equity over to that page. Uh, and that's a way to get, you know, more transactional pages that you want to have rank rank um, without having to kind of crowbar uh, links into that page. You're building links to those other pages that are then pushing that link equity and, you know, sort of relevance over to that page too. You know, obviously there's B2B and B2C they probably take some very different tactics. Let's say that you were building a t-shirt site to sell t-shirts online. Mm -hmm. As a business person who's trying to establish that business, 
you know, a lot of people are, it's easier to think about the product they're going to make and produce, right? And then to do all the marketing or to set up the website is, is less of a familiar thing per se. But say you have a small business person, he wants to do that. What are some of the things that he should start focusing on to launch his business? Besides just getting a site up and getting the e-commerce working and the products sold, what would kind of be like the first next step after getting it up and running that he should focus on to start tailoring the SEO strategy so that he can start receiving traffic? Sure. So I think probably the first step is to think about uh, keyword targeting and the types of terms that they would want to rank for that would make sense for their business. And that would be a fit for uh, the relative authority of the site. So one of the things that you know you need to keep in mind, especially as you're starting a new site, is that there's a whole universe of terms that you're not going to be able to rank for out of the gate, right? So again, as you build, as you think about the sort of uh, keywords that you want to target and the topic clusters that you want to target, um, you want to have potentially a mix of things that are very low competition and things that are a little bit more ambitious that you might rank for down the line. And you start to build out that cluster sort of with that in mind. So um, some of the ways that you can think about to, you know, identify some of these terms that you want to target, you would, you know, use traditional keyword research tools, uh, you know, brainstorming, just topic ideation, uh, thinking about some of the terms that you might want to rank for, checking those against some of the third-party keyword tools, which will give you, you know, rough volume estimates to see, like, okay, does it look like people are searching for these? Um, and then also looking at competitor sites, right? Uh, and building out your keyword strategy. Okay, these are the different types of terms that I would want to rank for. Um, so that's kind of piece one. And then the second piece would be uh, thinking about the types of pages that will be able to rank for those terms. So again, you think about it from a, you know, uh, a t-shirt company, you know, there are going to be some transactional terms, like, you know, uh, if they're doing different, um, you know, types of prints of, uh, you know, like niche t-shirts, like, you know, if they're, they're creating heavy like metal t-shirts, right? Right. Heavy metal t-shirts or specific band name t-shirts, things like that. Those will be more transactional, but they'll probably be very competitive, right? So they'll want to potentially find like a combination of, uh, long tail terms that are, you know, really specific, like, you know, um, you know, black heavy metal t-shirts, you know, that X, Y, Z, right? Like really specific, uh, phrases that they would be able to rank for out of the gate, but also maybe have like, you know, some of those heavy metal t-shirt, um, you know, sort of category pages. Um, and then also think about, you know, again, within that realm of different topics, um, are there tangential terms that are more informational that they can create informational blog content against and use a similar strategy to what we talked about with the B2B SaaS, where it's like, it's an informational topic, um, maybe related a little bit more broadly to, uh, heavy metal style, right. Um, you know, uh, right. Like, you know, heavy metal in general, even, uh, what are some of those types of topics that are related to these terms? And one of the things to use too, um, is some of Google's own tools, right. And some of Google's own data. So, uh, some, you know, sort of classic things that tend to work well are looking at, um, the things that Google suggests related to a term. So you go to google.com, you type in, uh, heavy metal t-shirts and hit space and you'll see some of their search suggestions, right? So Google's creating those suggestions for a searcher based on things that other people have searched for related to that core term. So that's a good way to think about it. You, you can look at the search result itself and see 
some of the things that they're layering in. So there's uh, generally a lot of people also ask uh, sections in search results now where those are related questions. And if you click on one of them and, and kind of open it and close it, you'll start to see more of those, right? And there's tools that automate this too. So uh, search response, that's uh, searchresponse.io um, is a good tool for this. It's, it sends back a lot of, um, they either will show you people also ask. The thing that's cool about that tool is they'll show you the people also ask questions and how many search results that, that search response is aware of that that particular question has shown up in. So if that's showing up across lots of different questions, that's a good indicator. And some of those are, the other thing that's nice about that is you can sometimes unearth things that are a little bit less competitive because not when, when so most of your competitors are going to go to a tool like Ahrefs or SEMrush or Google Keyword Planner, type in heavy metal t-shirts and see all those results, right? So when you go to target some of those, you're gonna be competing with all your competitors, right? Whereas not everybody's going to search response to see these, and some of those won't show search results in, uh, won't so show search volume in an Ahrefs or a SEMrush, but will actually have search volume, right? So that's another good um, trick. And hitting a lot of those, right? you start to get a topic cluster and you know that those are things that Google finds to be related because they're showing those in the same core search result, right? So that's a good way to find uh, some of those related topics, interlink those. Um, and again, some of those more informational terms will be things that will be easier for you to build external links for too. Um, so those are good, good ways to think about it. Speaking of keywords, I mean, when acting as a functional analyst, one of the most challenging things about working with new clients is figuring out what it is that they really want. And a significant part of it is keyword research, naturally. Service that we went uh, quite in depth on. And I, I've tried to do it a couple of times over the past years, but I haven't ever discovered a reliable way to find all the new tangential keywords that may be relevant. Uh, how would you, I mean, we already talked about typing it into Google, right? I mean, that's, that's free research right there. But if I need uh, something more uh, brainstorming like, is there uh, a tool readily available for that? Yeah, in terms of like top level, like, you know, just some of the universe of, yeah, so, I would say a few things. I mean, one thing that we always do as part of a client engagement is just to get feedback from the client as part of like a kickoff questionnaire and sort of, you know, and, you know, what do you view as potential terms that people might be typing in, right? Um, and what are some, you know, some other things that you can do there too, I think is, is really to dive deep. So a, a couple other questions that we'll ask clients that I think are good um, ways to find different, again, general topic areas are you know, who are your direct competitors? A lot of times a client's direct competitors may actually not be the best source of keyword uh, data just because they might not be doing any SEO, right? Uh, or they might be doing it poorly. So you don't always necessarily just want to like blanket copy the site that's getting the most traffic because we've had instances where a client will have a competitor and we'll look at a lot of their terms and we'll say, oh, okay, this client, this is the competitor who's getting the most search traffic potentially you'd want to emulate them will bring back some of the terms that they're ranking for. And the client will be like, those are totally irrelevant. We don't want to rank for any of that stuff. Right. And maybe the client's right in the sense that like that, that site might be ranking for a lot of super broad stuff. That's not bringing them any business. Right. So 
competitors are a decent starting point, but you also want to think about popular publications within the niche, right? So, and again, if you don't know those, you know, personally, you can go to your client or, or try to, um, you know, talk to people who have a high level of expertise or, you know, potentially like service teams or salespeople who are talking to a lot of people. What are the publications that those uh, people are reading that your prospects are reading? What are they using for top level categories, right? So if you go to like, you know, uh, uh, a site that's, um, you know, uh, a niche publication really specific to what your client does, what are the categories that they're using when you kind of just look at their top level nav even, right? What are the posts that get the most traffic for them and get the most links? Um, another one that we use that I, I think is a, is a good, again, a good hack for just like top level stuff is what are popular conferences, right? And looking at, uh, so conferences obviously don't have any kind of uh, intent about search traffic necessarily, right? But they are sort of uh, the conference organizers have their pulse on the niche, right? And they're thinking about high level topic areas and things that are trending. And sometimes those could be areas that might not have the most search volume right now, but will in a few months. So, you know, uh, an example is like ChatGPT. GPT. If you look in third-party keyword research tools like Ahrefs or SEMrush, it shows very little search volume for a lot of ChatGPT-related terms. But you obviously know that there's a ton of people searching for that stuff, right? If you're in the in the niche, obviously, right now, right? And those tools will catch up, and in a couple months, it'll start to show that, right? But so conference organizers can be kind of like that for a specific niche. They might be sort of on the forefront of. Um, what those specific, uh, you know, uh, niches find interesting. So looking at, you know, the tracks that they're, you know, uh, running and the specific talks and also like anything that you can do to kind of get a gauge of like, oh, okay, like what's the, you know, sort of keynote who seems to be getting like, you know, the prominent position within these, um, you know, conferences and what are they talking about? What's their area of expertise? That can be another, you know, sort of proxy for uh, what's like a good high level topic area. And then you can start to dive deep using some of the tools that we talked about once you have a, a sense of that high level um, topic area. Another one that's actually pretty good is to think about um, like the way that uh, books about a topic are structured, right? So again, right, if you're sort of, if you're, um, you know, addressing a specific um, area within a niche, you might get like, you might look for like a, a book on that topic. If you're uh, marketing to more uh, like, you know, novice people within an industry, you might, you might look for like, you know, dummies, books right or like 101 on a topic and just look at how the chapters are structured that'll give you like top level you know topic areas right because again that person has probably taken a pretty uh thorough comprehensive look if you look at a few different books um, and tried to think about how to organize all of the information related to that topic area um so that could be another you know or courses on the topic too right like what are the different um you know uh sort of uh, modules that ha somebody has within a course um, those can all be good ways to sort of get a a good high level idea of different topic areas that you might want to dive into if you were making a site that was focused on say uh headphones and headsets for uh you know uh, the audio industry and you went to a trade show like uh, uh, uh ces consumer electronics show and you looked at their you know they have a lot of seminars and you find a bunch of seminars on uh the newest microphone technology for headsets you would know that that's a topic that, that that's kind of relevant in coming in. Or you pick up a dummy uh, book, uh, How to Build a Headset, and you see all the, the structure of topics for it. You could use that as kind of, uh, uh, kind of a guide to structuring your content. 
Exactly. Or if you see like an enthusiast site, right, that you know your prospects are interested in, or, and it could be a message board, it could be kind of like a, a subreddit looking for topics on uh, subreddits. Again, those might not be a proxy for things that people are searching for, but they give you kind of a jumping off point and you can start to dive in there. And the other thing to do too, as you, as you start to uh, sort of drill a little deeper is again, right? Like, so your competitors in the competitors that your client or, you know, you as a business think are your business competitors might not always be the same as your search competitors. Um, so a way to think about it is when you find a really good term and, you know, you and or the client are like, oh, that's a great term. Look at the sites that are ranking within that search result, particularly the sites that have a similar level of authority yours, right? Like have similar, um, you know, sort of domain authority metrics, external linking metrics when you look at them in Ahrefs or SEMrush and dive deeper into those sites, right? Because if they're ranking for that term, they're probably ranking for other related terms that again are, are relevant for you um, and are things that you can potentially compete on if they're, if they're a comparable uh, you know, level of uh, domain authority to you. So that's another good thing to do as you drill down. So if you're kind of planning out a site or building a, a site uh, for your business, um, the key words and the, the, you know, there are probably, you can easily come up with five or six keywords that are very relevant to your business. How deep should someone really go into how many keywords? I mean, if you pick five and they're very relevant and you focus on those five, are you leaving a lot on the table versus having 15 keywords, which five are core and another five are kind of related and the last five are, yes, they can apply to your business or, or what you're selling, but they're there because you have, they have some minor connection. Does it matter how many? Is it better to focus on few or is it better to have everything? So I would say now it's better to focus on few. And what I would typically advise is say, so say you have, um, you're mapping out a few months of content and you're saying, hey, we're going to create 60 pieces of content in the next few months. I would pick three or four core sort of topic areas and go really deep within each of those areas as opposed to just doing, you know, 60 different topics or, you know, uh, 30 different topics with or you know, 20 to 30 different topics with two or three posts in each topic which is actually the opposite of what I would have recommended say like five years ago. Cause again, you could have gone a lot uh, thinner and sort of used more of a portfolio theory and seen what stuck and then gone deeper there. But now I think actually you're not going to get traction with those if you're just doing a lot of one-off stuff. So I would go deeper. So again, right? Like you would pick your sort of few core topic areas and say, okay, this is, um, you know, the, the stuff that's absolutely the most relevant and go really deep within that topic area and go for a mix of, again, right, things that have are showing some search volume, some of those related uh, search suggestions that might not even show any search volume. Um, but, you know, again, right, like you can see from the people also ask or the search suggestions that there is some, you know, sort of uh, scent of information that there's likely to be some search volume there. And you know that they're related to that core kind of topic cluster that you're creating. And I, I wouldn't, necessarily run with a topic cluster unless you're willing to do at least like 10 to 20 pieces of content around that topic cluster that that tends to be and and again so it, it sometimes it depends on the the competitiveness of the of the niche too right so if you're in a really competitive niche you might need more like 50 or 100 posts around that topic um to really compete because a lot of other sites are doing that 
um, and and operating at that level. And and then again, there's obviously other variables like how uh, competitive is it, how authoritative are the sites that you're you're competing with, all that stuff. But yeah, that would, I think 10 to 20 would be a good guideline in terms of um, how deep you want to go within a topic cluster as a minimum. There was a brief moment in time when uh, I don't know if uh, you remember this, but uh, like word clouds or or search term clouds were very popular. Like every site had them, and it was just a bunch of words literally <laughs> just thrown on yeah. the page. But uh, that trend didn't seem to go anywhere. So no, no, yeah, I think I mean there was there's a lot of wild stuff if you look back at what used to work. Right there used to be. I mean, early on, Google had to outlaw stuff like putting um, white you know, putting like white uh, text on a white background, uh, right? Because it was, you know, and some of these search engines were so easy to fool that it was like, you would have like your, you know, uh, it would be like, oh, you know, uh, Susie's dog site. And then the text would be like casinos, right? Uh, And it would rank for casino related stuff, right? Or like you said, you know, you could just have a word cloud and, uh, you know, mention a bunch of random stuff and that would be stuff that you would rank for. Um, But certainly uh, a lot more sophisticated now and they just keep, you know, sort of raising the bar in terms of uh, the level of depth and, uh, you know, uh, different moving pieces that you have to. And I think, you know, one of the things that they've, again, they've really dialed up and gotten a lot better at within the last couple of years is just that query intent. You know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, I think Google was pretty bad at things like, so, you know, within the affiliate space, particularly, a lot of sites got hit where they would be ranking on very broad terms like, dog food, right? Where if somebody's searching dog food, Google's now kind of determined the intent is probably that they want to purchase some dog food. Whereas if they are searching for best dog food, they might want more of a review article. But a couple of years ago, it was a lot easier to get your review article to rank for just dog food, right? So Google's continually dialing up that. And some of the things that you'll see now too is they'll actually show more variety in some search results. So you know, the example of data loss prevention, right? Whereas a couple of years ago, it might've been all glossary pages. Now they might show, okay, we're going to have a couple glossary pages, but actually it's a better user experience if we don't have 10, because the glossary, the people looking for a glossary style overview will pick the first couple. And then we want to have actually like best practices articles and, uh, you know, X number of tips article, right? So it makes it even more difficult to optimize for those search results, right? Because you have to kind of balance like, okay, what type of content can I rank in this SERP? What's this thing that I'm going to be best at? What other variables do these uh, sites that are ranking have that mine may or may not have? Like those glossary style results, if those are just off the charts authoritative, I'm probably not going to get those spots. So maybe I'd be better off creating like more of a tips article or a best practice article. So, you know, a sort of final level as you're thinking about the content you want to create is actually to to look at the search result. That's actually, again, a, a kind of an underrated step that I think a lot of people don't take is like really delving into like, okay, I'm going to create a piece of content that I'm going to try to rank for data loss prevention and some related terms. I need to actually look at these search results that I'm targeting, see the types of things that are ranking there and take that into account as I'm creating my my article too. The tactic or strategy that has the most ROI at this point seems to be that of content generation. Uh, putting out a flow of consistent content uh, on your site and that content having a structure and an organization and a relationship to each other. That seems to be the most, I I guess, cost-effective way that, say, a small business could start adding value and getting traffic, organic traffic to their site. 
Um, so that challenge, in some ways, things like ChatGPT and some of these AI tools can produce a bunch of content. I think that I, I've experimented with it, and we actually had a guest on our last podcast who talked a lot about it. Mm-hmm. That content can come across uh, as low uh, saturation. It's very glossy. It doesn't say a lot. It may have some keywords in it. It may have a rough outline. But most AI-generated content, even if you're really good at the, the query, right, you still need to edit it to get it to relate and fit into the context of what your site and business is all about. I think a lot of people, though, are not very educated on it. So they just type in something to chat GPT and then take whatever it, the output is and just throw it on their site as a blog article. And that, that, that may actually have negative results in search versus a, another. But that is a question. I'm sure Google is thinking a lot about this. And I'm sure that in the next couple of months, you're going to start seeing a whole bunch of this AI-generated content that wasn't curated by a person or a company who actually knows what they're doing. And it's just basically verbal garbage, right? Know, but they, that, you know, That's already there. Yeah, it's already there. How do you think that's going to impact the industry or search and and Google? Yeah, so I, I think it's it's obviously a very hot topic, and SEOs are kind of famous for uh, trying to uh, get as much leverage out of any new technology as we can, right? So uh, I think, and you know, uh, like Botan said, you know. This isn't this isn't like a super new concept in the sense that, you know, so again, I've been doing this for, you know, over 10 years. One of the things that people used to do was use what were called content spinners, right? And so that was like a very pedestrian version of this sort of AI generated content where you would like, you know, put in sort of paragraph templates and vary them by, you know, the times that they show up and you would have like, you know, 10 different, uh, you know, potential sentences and you would use wildcard variables. And so it would be like, we have the greatest insert product here. You can get it in different colors, like insert the colors that you can get it here. Right. And you would just like mash it up. Right. So that was pretty, those were pretty dumb, right. Compared to the new AI software and were pretty easy to detect, but like anything else, it worked until it didn't. Right. (laughs) Um, and some people probably made a ton of money off of that, uh, approach, but, yeah. So, you know, at, at one time, right? um, but so, you know, the AI, the, you know, to your point, right. I think that, and, and even more recently, like, you know, even before ChatGPT, people were using Jasper, um, you know, AI and some of these other tools um, to generate some of this AI content. And I, like, one thing I would say to people is to keep in mind, especially if you're a small business owner, that there's different rules for different sites, right? Like everything in life, right? So somebody like, so CNET, there was, um, you know, publication or uh, publicity around a couple of these things, right? So CNET and Sports Illustrated, right? They both kind of have these incidents where they've been using AI content and already um, there were people kind of caught them generating AI content with just wildly factually incorrect information. And in the case of the Sports Illustrated content, it was on, I think, Men's Health, um, one of the, you know, publications that Sports Illustrated owns. And it was like, you know, sort of like how to increase testosterone type content that was just wrong, right? And doctors Uh were like, this is, you know, kind of misinformation and potentially dangerous, right? So, but those articles for CNET, you know, somebody did some analysis around it, look like they're already ranking, right? But the fact that CNET rolls out articles 
that are low quality and AI doesn't mean that you can't, right? The same articles that will rank well on CNET might get your site into trouble with Google, right? Because Google's looking at, again, a, a variety of factors where Google's trusting everything that CNET rolls out. And by default, they're kind of not trusting anything that you roll out, right? So I, I would keep that in mind just because you see somebody or like a case study where somebody says like, oh, I generated 10,000 AI articles in two weeks and this is where my traffic went. You're not seeing the month three to five of that site, right? And that site might have other characteristics that are different than yours. So that's worth keeping in mind. And I think it's just like anything else, right? So you're going to have levels to it. There's going to be people who figure out how to, and you know, people are already coming out with tools that layer on prompts to the chat GPT API that say, okay, take the output and also format it this way, right? And do like, you know, uh, and then layer on this additional prompt. And some of those tools will be more useful than just getting the output directly from, you know, the sort of GPT-4 powered chat GPT interface or whatever. Um, but for a lot of those, you'll still have to QA everything, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the couple of things to keep in mind with chat GPT are, you know, one, there's, and I think this is, you know, one of the, you know, sort of most important things for your brand and just like, you know, ethically and morally, chat GPT is often confident but wrong. So it gives very right sounding feeling answers that are just wrong, yeah. right? And if you've played with it a lot, then you know that this is the case. So you have to really carefully QA it um, and make sure, and, and not sometimes it'll be wrong or it'll just kind of be directionally wrong. It'll give you sort of a way to do something that's not really the most efficient way. So you do have to have somebody with some level of expertise if you want the content to be accurate reviewing the content and QAing it. The other thing to keep in mind about ChatGPT is it's not an SEO tool, right? So again, that's why some of these like, um, you know, interfaces that are laid on top of it could be really useful because they can layer on some SEO best practices or SEO data. But when you ask ChatGPT to give you an outline for an article, it's not really leveraging SEO best practices. It's not, you, you know, another thing to keep in mind with ChatGPT is uh, all the information is based on a set of training data that's from late 2021. Yep. So it's not going to have any, you know, up to date, uh, you know, sort of statistical information or, you know, and it's not using like a search API. I, I did um, an article for search engine land. And one of the things I did was, uh, you know, you can uh, look at the, the prompts that I used and the output that I got. I said to ChatGPT, like, you know, give me some long tail keywords. And it gave me long tail keywords on a specific topic. Then I said to ChatGPT, how did you get these keywords? And it worked through, and it said, I got these keywords by doing A, B, and C. And it was like, I went to the Ahrefs API, and then I got keyword data there. And then I looked at the search results. And just knowing how ChatGPT works, I said, I said to ChatGPT as though it was like a person, hey, ChatGPT, that's not possible. Like, I know that you can't do that. Is that really true? And it was like, oh, I'm sorry for the confusion. I actually didn't do any of that. That's a process that one could do, right? So it literally lied to me, right? So again, when you're, you know, you have to be really careful with this and sort of understand how the tool works and QA the output. Because, you know, if I, if I didn't know any better, I would have been like, oh, awesome. It's using all these SEO best practices. This is going to be a great SEO article. When in reality, and when I actually, you know, again, QA'd the list and looked at it, they didn't have any search volume. There was no search volume for any of those long tail terms. And, you know, if I had just gone and created a bunch of content against that, you know, those ideas, I might've spent, you know, thousands of dollars or tons of hours, right? Like, you know, optimizing against the wrong thing. So, you know, that's all, it's, it's a very powerful tool that's going to be really interesting for, um, I think automating a lot of processes, but 
you know, it, there's still, it's still very flawed and you got to kind of understand how it works and, you know, what checks to put in and all that stuff. Yeah. So by the way, allegedly the latest version of chat GPT actually does that. Well, so it <laughs> allegedly. doesn't, I don't think so. I've, I've played with chat GPT four and I actually ran some of the same, uh, prompts, right. And you know, the, the, the places that it falls down, I find. So chat GPT four is much better at handling more complex tasks but it still messes them up a lot. So I'll give you a specific example. This is with ChatGPT, with, excuse me, GPT-4, which is the underlying technology for ChatGPT. So if you're like a paid user, you can select a dropdown and use, you know, three and a half or four. So this was using four. This is not on the old tool. I said to ChatGPT, like, um, for a set of URLs, generate title tags for me, right, that I would use for search and limit the character count to 65, which is something that it's not good at. It doesn't really understand character counts. And give me three columns, a column for the URL, a column for the title tag, and a column for character count, right? So you would think that's like a fairly straightforward task that you know uh, the chat GPT would be able to do. So it did some of it, right? So it's, it gives me the URL back in a column. It gives me a title tag. Some of, a lot of them were actually fairly short and within the character count. Um, but then in the third column, it would give me either character counts that were incorrect, right? Or instead of a character count, it just gave me the, the domain of the, of the URL. It wasn't a character count. It was just like, you know, text, right? So again, the more complex you get, whereas if I had just given the URL and the title tag, it probably would have spit it back out correctly, right? So the more complicated the task, <clears throat> the more uh, sort of prompts that you need to use, um, you know, the more sort of rot for error you're going to get as the output and the more you really need to QA. But again, one of the things that I think ChatGPT is really cool for is as a starting point for stuff like that. So, you know, an example, we talked about keyword research. Uh, I, I showed this prompt too. You can say to ChatGPT, like, hey, what would the, you know, outline for a book on, you know, you know, plumbing for dummies look like? And it'll actually give you a pretty good starting point. You don't want to take that and just build your website around that necessarily, but it gives you like a pretty good outline of like, oh, okay, these are actually pretty good top line ideas. And similarly for title tags, it's like, oh, that's not a bad idea for a title tag, but... I, if I'm looking at search console data, third-party keyword tool data, I'm going to create a much better title tag, right? So it can give you like a starting point for a structure for that. Um, but depending on, and again, if I, if I have like a ton of pages that are somewhat low value and I need to create like meta descriptions for those, it can be a cool tool for that, right? It can be very useful for that. And I might just want to run with those meta descriptions, you know, versus the time it would take me, especially if you're like a small business owner or something, to actually generate you know, title tags or meta descriptions for all those pages. Um, but yeah, you want to be aware of its limitations. That's, that's how I think of chat GPT is useful as, as a tool. We use it basically to write some content and the way we use it is I ask it for a basic outline. Uh, I would like to, you know, applications for an infrared camera in the security industry. And it would yep. give me a fairly structured <clears throat> outline, maybe 300 words and I'm looking to write an article for, you know, 1200 words, I would, you know, at least I have a structure. I don't have to think about the structure. I can then think about how do I fill in the various points, do the research, find articles that are relevant to it and link that in. And instead of that process taking four hours, it takes two and a half hours, right? Yep. Yeah. And the way I think of it too, is almost like you can think of it like a very junior assistant, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's similar in the sense that, right? It's like like 
like you have to create a good SOW for, you know, somebody, a good statement of work for somebody when you're giving them a new task, you kind of have to do that in your prompts, right? You want to think about how do I structure this prompt in a way that ChatGPT will understand it and give me the right output. How do I, I, I only want to delegate tasks that it's going to be good at, just like an employee, right? You don't want to give them something that's going to be impossible for them. Um, and I want to QA it, right? Particularly if I've seen that it doesn't do this task particularly well, right? Yeah. So yeah, and, but, but if you give it the right task with the right input and the right sort of QA on the back end, it can save you a lot of time for sure. Yeah. And outlines, I think, is a good use of that. Again, you know, another thing you can do with like content outlines is you can sort of feed it some of the items that you want to have included in the outline too, right? So you can say, give me an outline for this topic and write, maybe I grabbed some of those people also ask uh, terms or some of those suggested, um, you know, related search terms, like give me an outline for this topic and make sure to include these, you know, five terms as, you know, subtopics within the outline or headers within the outline. Right. Um, and then again, right. Like you just kind of have a jump start on that and it'll fill in other stuff that's not as search specific, but you have a blend of all the stuff that you want to make sure you have for your on-page SEO, but also you cover the topic really thoroughly, which, you know, is, is good for SEO as well. For the future of SEO, what do you think are going to be the things that are going to most affect SEO in the next, you know, three or four years? Uh, that's a great question. So AI is definitely one of them um, and the sort of flood of AI contents and thinking about how to, like we talked about, right, like both leverage and differentiate yourself, right? Um, I think increasingly Google's going to look to, or, you know, if another search engine, if it wins, is going to look to find signals that indicate not only that you have content on a particular topic, but that you have a deep level of expertise, right? And that's something that they talk about a lot. And I think sometimes um, when you are interpreting things that Google say uh, in the press, it's almost like they're sort of trying to speak into existence what they want to have happen. So when they talk about EAT or EEAT now, right? And they say, oh, we have this like super ingrained in the algorithm. The, what they really mean is like, we're trying to get to this <laughs> as much as we can. And we're making some progress and we have different things that are a proxy for it, but actually we're not as good at it as we want to be. So we're trying to scare people into, you know, like doing it anyway. But that doesn't mean that they're trying to get there, right? So thinking about like, you know, layering expertise on top of AI content, what are the areas that you can leverage the um, these sort of AI tools uh, to create content at scale, but still having a, a level of QA um, and a level of expertise that differentiates you. I think that's going to be a big um, component uh, continually. I think like how you can um, demonstrate that you have a deep level of expertise with a lot of different content, a lot of different types of content. And I think increasingly that'll probably be different types of media. So as Google looks at, you know, are you an authority, not just do you have a lot of different types of uh, blog posts on a topic, but do you have blog content with, and video content? Um, are you going really deep on this topic? Do you have some sort of uh, bio um, that is an indication that you have expertise on this topic? Um, I think all those things will be important. And I think performance is, you know, your page performance and, um, you know, making sure that you have, you know, fast loading pages across a lot of different devices is going to be important too. Um, because, you know, again, obviously like we'll, a lot of, I think a lot of niches that have historically people have searched on desktop will see more and more mobile traffic, more and more traffic across different types of devices. I think in the next five years, 
right? You never even know, you never know there might be a different form factor that people are browsing more on. Um, so making sure that you have really fast loading, high performance, uh, you know, content and applications for things. That's uh, kind of why uh, like Jamstack is getting popular because it, it creates fast right. loading pages and, and, and yeah. obviously YouTube, you know, you mentioned YouTube has its own, is its own search engine. And I assume yep. that uh, you, you you know you work a lot in trying to get YouTube content because uh, people are looking more and more at video and reading less. And although Google is based really on text, uh, they're trying to incorporate video. I think video is important, right? Yeah, for sure. And and you know AI is another area that's going to I think impact video, make it easier for people to create video. And you're already seeing some of the, again, right? Like some of these sort of tools that will and like you know the most pedestrian version is they just sort of take your blog post, put stock photos on a video and turn your text into a, you know, transcription that's read by somebody. Um, but you know, we'll have probably more advanced versions of that image creation, right? With things like Dolly and and things. I think that'll increasingly and again, you'll have to kind of level up the user experience on your pages in terms of like the expectation will be that your images will be really high quality. Right. And that you'll have like cool prompts that you're coming up with and, you know, AI generated images, the, the sort of table stakes for the images that you can create will be higher having video on blog posts again, right. Like might eventually be table stakes. It'll be hard to rank if you don't have some sort of video element. Right. Um, and again, and, and also like, you know, social networks too. I think another thing that I think, you know, will probably likely be, a thing that we see with with SEO more broadly is just a little bit of diversification in terms of the way that people are getting answers to questions. So a lot of people have talked about, you know, ChatGPT replacing Google. I think if that happens, that's way, way out. Um, it probably isn't likely if you use ChatGPT a lot, you know that like yeah. if you if you replaced Google with ChatGPT for a week, you would not want to, you know, you would be dying to go back to Google um, at the end of the week. But I think there are going to be niche applications. So, you know, and that you've already seen it, like there have been some of these studies that like, you know, and I know this is true for my kids, um, you know, kids under 15 use TikTok as a search engine more than Google. Right. And And I don't think that'll be true for everything. But query dependent, it'll definitely be true, right? And there's definitely stuff where like, you know, I, we'll, we'll be talking about something and I'll go to Google and my kids will go to TikTok, right? <laughs> yep. To find like the answer to something, right? So, you know, thinking about um, what types of queries are going to be searched for the most on what types of platforms and then optimizing for those and being in those places for your brand is going to be important too, I think, yeah. Well, um, I know you have a company and uh, do you want to talk a minute about what your company does or specializes in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for Measured SEM, we offer consulting services, um, both a combination of uh, SEO and PPC. Um, so we do what you would think of as more, you know, sort of traditional SEO blocking and tackling, things like technical site audits, um, crawling your site, um, topic ideation and keyword research. Um, we also do ongoing content creation and promotion. So those are SEO specific assets. So some of the things that we talked about, like creating like, you know, uh, linkable assets that you would do outreach for or uh, glossary style content that would target specific terms. Um, we do a lot of that work um, for clients. And then we do, you know, sort of uh, more traditional PPC campaign management across uh, primarily uh, AdWords, um, you know, Bing, LinkedIn, or, or Facebook, um, and just managing page search spend um, uh, for clients as well. And we work with, you know, a variety of different businesses and different niches. Um, a lot, tend to be a lot of like medium-sized businesses. Um, we work with like a lot of B2B SaaS or, um, you know, uh, B2C e-commerce type companies. So, yeah. And how do uh, people get a hold of you? 
Um, so best, quickest way is probably Tom at measuredsem.com um, via email. I'm a, a very quick email. Again, that's a, showing my age. Uh, email is usually the best platform for me. Um, but you can also just go to our website, uh, fill out a form, measuredsem.com. Um, yeah. Great, great. All right. Well, Tom, thank you very much. It's an excellent uh, conversation about SEO. I learned a lot myself. And uh, for our listeners, uh, next month we'll have another uh, interesting podcast on the Screen Box Technology and Business Rundown podcast. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All righty. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking this journey with us. Join us for our next exciting exploration of technology and business in the first week of every month. Please help us by subscribing, liking, and following us on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please let us know any subjects or topics you would like us to discuss in our next podcast by leaving a message for us in the comment sections or sending us a Twitter DM. Till next month, please stay happy and healthy. <laughs>